Firefighting is essential for our communities, but it's not easy. With increased heat loads and toxic substances, the job today is more dangerous than ever. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet the challenges you face every day to help keep you safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com globe. Hello and welcome to Today on Firehouse. My name is Peter Matthews. I'm the editor here. And uh, we have Chief John Friedel from the Minneapolis Fire Department joining us uh, to talk about the last week and, and some of the responses and scenarios that the Minneapolis Fire Department uh, has faced uh, in the wake of the, the riots, uh, the protesting and the riots um, throughout the city. Um, Chief, thank you for joining us, and I, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I, I know, you know, watching the press conferences and listening to things that you probably haven't slept in the better part of a week, uh, so I really do appreciate you taking the time to join us today. No, Peter, thank you. Uh, welcome to do it. I'm glad to do it. Thank you. Thank you. And, and Chief, can you tell us a little bit about your background, just for the, the listeners who may not know much about you? Um, I, I know when I first moved to the Twin Cities years ago, uh, you you were there, and, and then you you retired, and then you came back, and you've had a, a very long uh, retirement, uh, uh, or actually, I guess, phase two of your retirement, before your phase two retirement, I'm sorry. Um, but can you just tell us a little bit about your background with MSD and uh, yeah. where you've been and what you've done? Sure. Yeah, I've, I've been with the I've been with the city in in, in city of Minneapolis for about 42 years. Uh, I did have a, about a 32 year uh, stint the first time uh, with the city, and I worked my way up through the ranks. So I was a you know a firefighter captain, battalion chief, uh, deputy chief of training, deputy chief of operations. Um, I retired as assistant chief of operations. And then I, I spent, uh, I went into emergency management, I had an opportunity to get into emergency management in, for the city of Minneapolis. So I just, I think I retired for four days and, and started with emergency management because I thought that it was a, you know, a, a unique and different opportunity that I haven't had a lot of, um, uh, lot of experience with. And I really wanted to, to, to kind of, to do that. So I, I became a certified EM and worked with EM for about, as a short time, probably about, uh, 20 months, and then the mayor at the time uh, asked if I would be willing to come back and do a, a term as the fire chief. And um, eight years later, I'm, I'm still here. So it's uh, it's been a it's been a heck of a run. And um, you know, I know that I'm in the the sunset of my career, but you know, you still you're always in that position to learn. And every day I go to work, I'm still trying to learn more. And it's uh, it's been a unique opportunity. I feel feel very blessed to have had the opportunities I've had in my career. Well, and that that sounds uh, sounds like an interesting storyline. I think you know we'll talk about uh, the emergency management and how that's kind of played a role uh, in the last week a little bit later on on the podcast here today. Sure. Um, but can you tell us about the the Minneapolis Fire Department and and kind of the I guess the thirty thousand foot view, uh, the size of the city, the population, um, staffing, uh, on duty companies, uh, and just the you know a snapshot of the, of the fire department. Sure. Yeah, the city. You know, let's say Minneapolis. It's, it's only. It's not a. You know, geographically not a big city, but it's it's about 58 square miles. It it. Uh, uh, you know, population roughly a little better than 400,000 people just in the city. But in the metro area, we've got um, uh, a number of people uh, having a sister city of St. Paul right right across the river. It's certainly it's it's a big metropolitan area. Uh, we have presently 19 stations, uh, which is. Uh, um, the position in around the, in the city, I have I have five. I have broken that down to five districts. I, I expanded the size of the department uh, to go to five districts with to add a a few more battalion chiefs and that some of that command structural piece for a couple reasons. Uh, I thought that we were a little bit initially. Um, it was very hard to you know effectively I think manage um, um, as, as the you know 19 stations and I thought we were short on districts and so I wanted to do one or two things, do a better job of managing the department and also create some upward mobility in the, in the department and more career opportunities and career advancement for some of the the folks who are looking to to uh, move up in the ranks. I know when I came back after uh, when I was retired and I came back, we were down to about 383 firefighters. We've been able to 
to grow it back to about 420 firefighters today. And so we're that's great. We're yeah, we've had a we've had a we created some momentum, and then we seem to have been able to carry it. And uh, although now with with everything going on with with COVID around the country and the impact on everyone's budgets uh, around the country, it's going to be a challenge. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my darndest to keep everybody I have and and uh, and make those sort of uh, uh, financial, administrative, and budgetary decisions we have to do to keep everybody on board. That's really important. Uh, so we it's it's a very diverse department. Um, we've got uh, you know a very very diverse department which we're proud of. It's uh, you know, a lot of people talk about diversity. It's it's challenging to to achieve and it's challenging to sustain. And um, so we've been very proud of what we've done. We do have a, an, what we call an EMS Academy, just a little bit about the department. We have an EMS Academy that I have, and what I agreed with the, with Local 82, our local union, and their leadership, uh, that every we have an EMS Academy, it's roughly 25 or 30 students a year, and that is generally about 90% persons of color and about 40 or 50% female. And when they graduate, we give them an opportunity, they're going to graduate as EMTs, and and they have opportunities maybe take a, a path of um, in a medical field and maybe become paramedics or um, in the case of what we've got structured with our EMS Academy, I've agreed with the union. We have a, a, a contractual agreement that every one of the connect classes I have or I put on, 30% uh, of each of those classes are graduates of our EMS Academy. So out of that, um, we've got 30, 35 graduates on our department. And so it's, it's a way to maintain the diversity and create some opportunity for young adults in the city of Minneapolis who maybe never thought about having a career in the fire service. And so it's been, we've been very focused on our recruitment. And so it's something we're proud of in it. And that's a, you know, a little bit about our, uh, about our department. We have a, you know, 19 engines, uh, 10 trucks. We have a, a couple of rescues, a 24 hazmat, 24 seven hazmat, technical rescue, or else we have a big uh, contingent on Minnesota task force one, which is uh you know, the, a lot of the state um, uh, uh, USAR teams a lot of folks have. Uh, so we, we've got um, a fair amount of capability, although we still have those, uh, a lot of the challenges that everybody else has. Okay. And, and I mean, having having lived in the Twin Cities for a while, um, what I really liked about that, that part of the country was, uh, you know, you have your commercial districts, you know, for instance, Lake Street. Um, you know, then you have your residential areas, but you still kind of every couple of blocks is like truly a neighborhood. Um, you know, that, that always seemed to be my observation as far as how the Twin Cities were laid out. So when you're when you're driving around Minneapolis, I mean, um, it's pretty safe to say, right? You've got Broadway, um, you've got Lake Street, um, you've got um, Central Avenue. So you have true business districts and then kind of the, the neighborhoods are built up around that. Um, so how many neighborhoods do you have in a city, um, just, just to kind of create that neighborhood feel, do you, do you think? Oh boy, we have, you know, if you, you know, within each of the five districts or five pieces of pie of the city, I think inside of each of those districts, there are a number of communities and they're, and they're very diverse. Um, so we have a number of them, obviously they all have their names and we have a, a number of of neighborhoods and, and you are right that's I, I think is a real um the beauty of minneapolis is that is that neighborhood and community feel that it still has even though we're a fairly large city we have that neighborhood feel and uh that's one of the hard things that that for me being a you know i grew up in the city and and uh, you know i've had the opportunity to to work for the city for a long time and to see some of these neighborhoods be impacted by what we're going through today has been very very hard to to watch it, it, is, it is certainly we all have in our in our communities the, the, the social and economical you know, economic stresses that we all have but you know and, and we're no different than that and we see those um, impacted by this these types of events it, it really makes you feel uh, it, it really does sadden you a little bit to be honest with you yeah it, it, you know being there is one thing and it, having watched it from from here in Texas um, it, it it's it's been very hard to watch. It, it really has hurt the heart. And um, when, when it carried over to St. Paul last week, it, you know, that was only but a few blocks from, from where I used to live off the of university in Lexington. And um, so again, you know, it's, it's the neighborhoods that, you know, it's not just a commercial strip. It is, it is truly neighborhoods that have been 
impacted in your local stores and, and, and businesses. So um, it's tough to watch from afar. So, uh, you know, being right there, being that it's your city, your hometown, um, I, I just can't imagine what you've been going through. So um, Minneapolis, I mean, unfortunately, there's been some, you know, stories over the last couple of years, last 10 years or so that have really captured national attention for the city. You know, one becomes um, the, I'm sorry, the Interstate 35W bridge collapse. And, and you were an incident commander for that incident, correct? Yeah, I was the, the on-scene incident commander, correct. Okay. Um, and then also, uh, just a few months ago at the Cedar Riverside Towers, you had a fire in a high-rise that, that claimed the lives of five residents. Um, and those folks were um, um, from Somalia. So, um, you know, the, the, it's not uncommon for incidents to happen in, in the Twin Cities and, and, you know, a national focus is there. Um, has there any has there been anything that you've taken away from the bridge collapse and then the fire at the Cedar Riverside um, that you've kind of applied to what's been going on the last week in Minneapolis? There, there's there's probably a, a number of things. Um, you know, I guess you know you know one of the, the first things that, that I that I took away, especially you know on the in, in these major incidents that we have, I've always I've always said that. When it comes to my my firefighters and my crews that are out there working every day, that you know we equip them, uh, we do try to do an effective job of training, and then it's really really important for us to trust them. And that's I've always done all these events is that we we try to do an effective job of, of of equipping, training, and then it's really important to trust them. And they they've just been always stepped up and made some really good sound tactical and operational decisions on the on the, on those scenes, whether it be the the bridge collapse or some of these major events that we've had that have um, unfortunately garnered some, some national news. They've just done a, a very effective job. And that's one thing I've been focused on is, is my people. And that's, that's what makes this thing run. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 you, you ride in a white horse, you wear your white coat and put your helmet on. You think you're going to change the world. Well, you're not, you're not going to change it alone. And it's so important to have those folks ready to go. And uh, they've just really stepped up, which has really been important for me. I'm very proud of the folks that, uh, and the things that we've done, and I'm very proud of my firefighters over the last few years. That's great. Well, uh, it, it sounds like you guys are taking the right steps to to take care of them. And, and again, I'll, I'll ask you about that a little bit later on as we kind of dig into the last okay. week. Um, sure. So, so let's let's move over to that. Um, you know what what's kind of going on in the last week. Um, I guess we'll kind of start from the very beginning. Can you, can you kind of tell us um, when, you know, the fire department truly got involved? I know we ran a story last week uh, that was about the incident report from um, um, George Floyd's um, EMS call. Um, so we don't really need to cover that, I don't think, today. But um, at what, you know, at what point did you guys start standing up additional resources expecting that there would be um, more than just protests coming into the city? Yeah, right. Right away, we, you know, obviously with the the tragic events of that day and and what led up to this is is uh, we started standing up. You know, we have we knew there's going to be some reaction. I'm not sure what that was going to look like, but we knew that there was going to um, be some type of reaction. And and you know, most of us, we, you know, a lot of departments on the country, we have you know policies and procedures for civil disturbance type type events. And um, and within that, there's a you know a, we sort of side circling the wagons a little bit, established some of our task force responses and talking about perimeter security and situational awareness and all those types of things that, that come into play with these types of incidents and who's enrolled in, whether it's in support us to to, uh, to maintain and protect those those perimeters for us because we aren't going to be able to do that. And, you know, and you kind of just kind of talk about getting in quick, do as best we can, and then knock it down and maybe leave and come back and, and, and um, given a situation where you might encounter um, and then we'll come back and, and, and finish the job a little later. So we, we just kind of dusted off the plans. We already had the SOPs we had in place. Uh, I think our SOPs are a total of about 900 pages long, so there's a lot of things. It seemed like everything in a policy, and, and you do the best you can to prepare people for these kinds of situations. And, and so we started preparing right away and standing up, you know, talking to our, not only our mutual aid partners from the fire side in terms of what kind of support might be available, we internally started structuring how the task forces be set up, where we position them, and in terms of what we thought might, uh, where this might start, where it may end up, 
and, and also um, working with our internal partners with law enforcement and, and not only from the local level but state level and uh, talking emergency management and, and making sure we're sort of ready to go. Okay, so can you tell us about the task forces and, and what Minneapolis has been deploying um, as far as resources and, and you know, What's the determination? Is a task force going out on every type of call? What do you what do you know? What are you doing for EMS calls? Because like anything else, right? You still have um, your your bread and butter calls, whether it's an EMS call or a vehicle fire in other neighborhoods. So, kind of, how is the department structured now, including the task forces? Yeah, we just we you know we we staffed up a little bit. Obviously, we staffed up our, our companies a little bit. Right now, we're running our task forces. Just uh, uh, we got we got two engines. Uh, a ladder company, um, a couple chiefs. I know I was out there and uh, myself the, uh, as the chief and assistant chief, and we had uh, uh, battalion chiefs obviously on scene. We the deputy chief, working that the particular days and or shift was was held back to toward sort of uh, deal with the issues with the rest of the city. Because you're correct, you have to uh, you can't take your eye off the bogey, and that's that's the city. And you're going to be focused on certain areas, but you still have the rest of the city run because that never stops and always it never sleeps. And so we had, to your point, we still had some runs in that area in terms of EMS and other issues to take care of. However, there was a, a little bit of a of a, um, a bend in, in the run curve uh, when this event happened. We were sort of focused on what was going on, and I think uh, some of our EMS events went down a little bit, and our other calls that we normally get day to day have sort of been reduced a little bit and everything kind of mm -hmm. sort of focused on in and around the the, the uh, civil unrest. Okay. Um, so so the first night, um, you know, I think that's kind of where, where a lot of the, you know, the media attention really jumped at that point to what was going on, the fires that started on Lake Street. Um, <clears throat> I was saying to you earlier, is, um, I was listening to the, to the Minneapolis scanner feed and watching live on KSTP um, when the first fire kind of came in, they kept, you know, the, the reporters were saying, oh, there's, there's smoke over there, there's smoke over there. I think it's an auto business shop, and eventually it became the auto zone. And that was kind of the first fire uh, that night. Yes. Um, but, but actually, I guess, you know, just to, to set the, the scene for folks who aren't, who have not been to Minneapolis, can you tell us about Lake Street, what kind of construction that is? I know, you know, I, when I lived there, I used to chase fires and, and, you know, whether it was the Twin Cities fire wire that I was doing or firehouse, um, you had a lot of spectacular blazes around Lake Street, right, within a few blocks just because of the sheer size of the structures. Um, uh, I actually remember there was that multi-fatal uh, apartment building fire um, that one winter as well. Um, but can you can you describe what Lake Street is and, and kind of what firefighters would would look at you know types of buildings construction um you know it's, it's a pretty wide road uh, but just kind of set the scene for what lake street is so we can understand that first okay uh, you know lake street kind of uh dissects the city it, it runs from east to west uh, from actually border to border and it is it's pretty much a um you know a commercial type street the typical mom pa type small businesses over the years it is is there are some larger business have been have been um, replaced. Most of the structures were built in, you know, the early 1900s. You know, you got wood frame um, con construction, and you might have uh, uh, with brick facades. The typical buildings that you see that are that are you know 90 to 100 years old have been remodeled over and over and over. Uh, some have been updated, some not so much. And we've got all the way up to um, you know typical new construction with all the apartments and stuff that have been in place in a lot of these areas on Lake Street. So it's a, a commercial uh, with residential above is a probably a typical Lake Street type uh, structure uh, for, and it probably runs approximately uh, five or six, seven miles. So it's it's a fairly long um, and very diverse. And along this street, it gets back to the different communities. You've got, uh, you know, a Smalley area along the, along the um, business area along that street. You have a, a Latino area. Um, and, and you have some that are owned by, you know, African-Americans. It's a very diverse uh, business mm -hmm. in terms of ownership along there and very vulnerable. I mean, a lot of these businesses are just, they're hanging on, you know, and they, a lot of them just hanging on to. And it's, it's uh, that's how you say when you see the impact of this in that area, it's a, 
it's a community in the area of Minneapolis that probably least could afford to have this kind of uh, devastation that it's had. Yeah, that, that is a great point. Um, you know, I think that that first night there was a lot of the attention was Target, um, you know, Co Foods and that kind of stuff. A lot of the these these chain businesses. Um, but really, yeah, I mean, if, if I think back to Lake Street, when you're driving down, it's a lot of mom and pop shops. Um, it is probably you know locally owned. So not only are they relying on the you know the community to support them, but they're also there to support their own community and. Um, you know, I mean, Town Town Talk Diner was a favorite place of uh, of mine. You know, Elden Wilder Rodeo was another one. I used to go there all the yeah. time. Um, the best, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's not it's not a chain. It's it's you know these these incidents have really just kind of shocked that community as far as even the um, you know the future of the businesses, but. Okay, well, I, I appreciate that because I think it's really important to set the scene for what you would encounter on Lake Street. So, yeah. um, so can you kind of tell us about the first nights when the first fires came in AutoZone, and then kind of where it went from there? Yeah, it was it was um, you know I, you know you're just it was just so typical and things that I was thinking about what might happen with some of the events and and a lot of those things happened. Obviously, we know that they they did initially there was. Or the third precinct building. Then now we're on the on the west or the east side of uh, sort of on one end of, of Lake Street, and there's a third precinct. And I'm sure everybody's seen it on TV and the fires. But they they lit the the auto zone off right away, and it was you know it was, it was typical how a lot of these things work. There was some you know an individual who was nonchalantly walking by the buildings and and just um, had a um, had a hammer and just walked right around the building, broke every window out with a hammer and then jumped in a vehicle and they were gone. And then the next crew comes in and it, so it was something that certainly had been planned. You know, this is something that almost seemed like it mm-hmm. worked straight a little bit in which a lot of these times they, they do that type of stuff. And so, you know, we rolled in there and they'd already eluded uh, the target store. They're in the process of doing it at the same time that they lit the auto parts store off. So we had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people looting and, and you can imagine that, the chaos and it, it it just created this this fervor that they just it was just really truly out of control and so we we rolled in with the task force and and obviously the the law enforcement Minneapolis PD was on scene and they're trying to establish a, a perimeter for us to uh, effectively uh, work in and that and things changed dramatically once you rolled into the block and and we established laid our first initial lines into the building and it was basically almost a a dump and pump. Let's get hooked up. Get it. Let's, let's get a, a you know some water supplies established and using deck guns just to try knock the thing, knock it down, and then and then get out as quick as we could. But as soon as they pulled in, they immediately ran um, uh, fencing and stuff and other debris across the street to block our exit. So they had pallets of wood piled up that they immediately lit off. And so uh, the way we came in was now blocked off, and that's when. In the looting of of Target is when they started throwing the rocks and and and, and bottles and they were throwing uh, half gallon milk jugs you know because they have handles they had like a little cache of stuff mm-hmm. that they had already set up that nobody noticed because there's so many people in that parking lot but they were just lobbing milk jugs and rocks and that's where we lost a lot of windows um, and so it was you know right away it, it got to be very very tenuous we realized that. Uh, you know, the we got in as quick as we could, and and then what what happened from that is because we were cut off, and, and the perimeter was a little bit it was a little bit tenuous at best. Um, obviously, the law enforcement was was dropping tear gas and those other things to try to try to minimize the impact to us and to protect us. Uh, they had gone into a building about a half a block away. That was a five-story. Um, apartment building that was probably 80% done. They were just starting to do the interior finishing, but very much open yet. They were just starting to put the windows in it. They dragged pallets into the the elevator shafts and they piled them up in the elevator shafts and then they, they lift those off. Uh, and we couldn't get there to do anything with it. it we just couldn't get there. And uh, so to sit and watch uh, an affordable housing, you know, uh, property as brand new being under construction to watch a five-story building just go up and you're a block away and couldn't get there to do anything with it was was 
that was that was hard to do. It was hard to watch. It was hard for you know all of us to stand there. We're working on the AutoZone fire, and we got that knocked down. All we just wanted to to leave and and uh, get out of there. So we were leaving that particular fire as these other ones were starting to build and smolder more. We could see other fires. And leaving, we left. We came in as a group, and we were escorted out with law enforcement through the. They made a. Um, Obviously, there was a lot of jeering crowds and, and rock throwing and other things going on, but they made a pathway for us to drive out. And one thing I'll, I'll, I'll probably never forget, I was at the end of the last uh, unit to leave, and I was following everybody out, and we're probably going, I don't know, maybe 10 miles an hour just to get out of there and make sure we didn't hit anybody. And then we, we started to accelerate once we cleared that initial hold ahead of a perimeter. And I looked over to my right, and there was two young men who just, um, just shattered the plate glass out of one of these typical um, small commercial properties with, with residential, uh, residential units above. And I just happened to look at them in my mirror, and I couldn't believe it. just shadows the windows right there looking at them. I'm right next to them. And I looked back oh. in my rearview mirror, and I noticed we had smoke showing. Well, they, what they did was they just they blew the windows out, and then they threw in the, the, the cocktails over the head, the accelerant. And um, the time I went around the block, to get back to that particular uh, structure, we had flames uh, showing out probably 15 feet into the street, and then we realized we had three apartment units in the in the back uh, of the building. So it, it got to be, and that was the only one of the a lot of the fires we've had that was really became very tenuous to do, try to get primary search to do the rescues. We had people jumping on the windows on top of the roof in the back to get them off of the off of the structure, and that's. That's where it started, and and that was kind of the, the first night, and we could just see it starting to spread down the street, and other task forces were deployed to multiple fires we had going on. It didn't take them long to start every auto parts store in that area on fire. Uh, they were the first things to go. Uh, the drug stores were the second thing that they, they hit, not only to um, uh, – I think what they're looking for there was, was to take uh, – it's very obvious they were there to take the – the medications that were in the um, in those facilities, and also any um, uh, medications that were that were stored in safes, they were they were taken from the structures also. So it was, it, that's when it really really started to build. And again, that within a couple blocks, I mean, it, it it looks like everything is right there. I mean, you had a couple of auto parts shops, you had your CVS and your and your Walgreens. Um, you know, many, I'm sorry, in St. Paul, they lost Floyd's uh, pharmacy up on um, Snelling and Minnehaha. Same thing. It was, it was blocks away from everything else, but that building was, was completely torched. The, they knocked it down, you know, that morning. So it seems like the same types of structures were hit repeatedly. That was kind of the main target, and then everything else kind of fell in. Um, yeah. So the, 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 as far as, you know, you, you mentioned the situational awareness and, and, and kind of the scene security um so your task force what is the task force made up of and and you know what's the incident command structure once the task force is on scene we have you know we have you know like I said we had keep it small and, and mobile and nimble enough to move in and out as quick as we could and that's the reason mm -hmm. and that worked out, out very well we had you know we had we had plenty of hopes and we had because most of these were we didn't do a lot of inter interior firefighting because it just by the time we got to the, the buildings were such as pretty much all defensive. So it was kind of a, you know, run up and, and establish a water supply. And usually we were deck gunning. I was, I was uh, very leery to set up any aerial devices on many of these because it takes so much time. And it just, uh, it was the, the environment at that time was not appropriate to take the time to set, you know, ladder companies up with elevated uh, water towers because the, the, the primers weren't such that uh, uh, we were in a, in a mode where if I would have given the call, we were just going to drop the lines and go uh, because it just got to that point where we we're going to drop the supply lines and any any other lines that we had laid and leave the hose, and we were just going to drive out of there to uh, get ourselves in a, in a much safer position. And so on scene, there was, you know, obviously uh, the instant command structure like everybody uses. We have that on scene. And I didn't bring in a mobile command units. I didn't bring in any of the additional units and, and set up a formal command post. It was just pretty much run out of their, out of their Tahoes and, and the mobile devices that we have. And, um, you know, fortunately we have a, a fairly uh, robust communication uh, system and policy and folks are very good about following those, um, you know, um, 
there again, accountability is, is a is a big one because they're just massive amounts of smoke, not only with, with with the gas that was being delivered, but also just smoke from the structures. And so accountability became a, a real concern in keeping everybody as close together as we could. Um, and then as soon as we knocked those fires down, we would just uh, as quick as you can reload very quickly and move on out of the area awaiting for the next one. And that's pretty much how it worked. We had, as far as dispatching the task force themselves, we had, we would, we had a deputy chief up in the EOC, which has also had a bunch of security cameras throughout the city. So he could, could make a, a real, um, he could, he had really good eyes and everything that was kind of going on. And, and mm -hmm. they would normally communicate with us saying, we've got another fire and they could pretty much narrow down the address. And they would ask, how do you want that respond? And we'd just, then we would notify, send task force three over, and then they would notify dispatch and they would just dispatch the, the run. So it tried to eliminate some of the back and forth chatter of calls coming in, trying to take some of the pressure off of um, the, the communications department in terms of dispatch and, and calls back and forth. You know, it typically happens, dispatch call, hey, we got another fire reported here. We got another fire reported there. Well, we already kind of knew what that was, so we kind of eliminated some of that pressure on our on our uh, dispatching system. So that worked out very well. We could we could actually talk about what we might have had. We all know what those buildings are. We make a determination what to send, if we should send them, if we had enough perimeter security or escort into that area. Sometimes we didn't have the security, and we just couldn't send them. And so we it was a lot of that, which which made it very challenging. You could see how. Well, things are starting to deteriorate, and that's what that's what made it. Uh, and they were trying to overwhelm us. I mean, that's 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 what happens, yeah. and that's that's generally what happens. These types of things, they were trying, and uh, we just weren't going to let them win. And uh, we had some small victories, I know that, but we were going to respond. Okay. And, and and so thank you for sharing that. That's that's actually very good. And you know, unfortunately, as as we get this edited and posted, there's cities that are just going to start. Um, facing these situations, it sounds like. So, um, yeah. So it's, it's good advice to share. Um, so I appreciate you doing that. And then once you're on scene, uh, I mean, who, who's, who's got your back, right? I mean, you've got companies focused on that. Are you positioning apparatus in a way that, 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 you know, it's kind of the, the, the structure that's on fire and then the members and then the apparatus are kind of like the outskirts for, for additional safety or, um, are you doing anything along those lines? We, yeah, we, we, you know, we actually, most of the rig position was pretty tight and we were made sure mm -hmm. that, you know, was, that we, we stayed pretty close because there was a lot of debris being thrown at us, uh, you know, in terms of, and stuff that wasn't like bottles of water. It was, you know, they were throwing chunks of concrete and rocks. They were shooting, they were shooting, um, you know, fireworks at us and it wasn't, they weren't bottle rockets. They were the ones that go up in the air 200 feet and explode or they were shooting at us. So they're going off all around us. And those were, those were disturbing because all of a sudden you did this the gigantic bang that was right next to you and, and almost like flares going off everywhere. So it was that first night and then maybe even the second night, it was a, a little bit challenging. I was really, uh, as, as, as a chief becoming very concerned about, um, the effectiveness of the security of our perimeters that we were getting established. In other words, they're just, you know, this thing was starting to unfold and it was starting to, to overwhelm law enforcement because they just didn't have the staff to, to appropriately secure us. And that, that became a challenge as we went further on into this second day. It became very evident that it was going to be very challenging for us to, uh, and, and obviously firefighter safety is always a number one. And I was not afraid to just drop the lines and go. Uh, we're going to do the best okay. we can. We were just trying to keep it to that structure. And if we didn't have exposures uh, that we were concerned about, it, it, it made the decision a little bit easier to just say, let's let's dump some water in, get it knocked down. We'll wait till it's more tenable, and we'll come back and, and mop it up later. Okay. And uh, you, know, you mentioned earlier about most of it was defensive. Uh, what was your, your criteria for a go, no go versus, uh, you know, any interior operations? Uh, and, and, you know, you just kind of mentioned it too, right? The exposures. If you don't have exposures, just knock it down and move on. Um, what was there a set criteria for that as far as, uh, you know, like I know, um, you know, some, some fires were made, you know, there were interior attacks that were made, but, you know, the bulk of them just due to the sheer volume of fire and everything else going on, um, seemed to be defensive operations. 
Yeah, the majority of them were, and, and, and there again, we you know we obviously do a good initial size up and and uh, take a look at the type of structure we had. You know, in auto parts store, there's when it's uh, you know three quarters, you got that, and we've all seen that smoke that doesn't look good. Uh, we all know it is, and most of them are already well ventilated. You know, most of the windows are banged out, and so we we just based on the the, the type of structure we're responding to. Obviously, if we had buildings that had occupants in them, that'd be a different scenario. But the majority that we had at least the first few nights, they were hitting, you know, like you said, the drug stores, the the, um, the food markets that were already closed, uh, Target that was open, that was looted in a day, all the employees left. So uh, there was some of those that we just knew that were uh, already vacant and the condition, the volume of fire upon our arrival in a lot of these, and mostly all of them were accelerated. And so you can imagine, we're already waiting to get appropriate security to, to mm-hmm. uh, escort us in, well, then that just takes when you got a you got an accelerated fire that you when time to get there, they are there is a large line of fire, so there'd just be it wouldn't make any sense to go in with a hand line to try to do anything. We would put blitz fires through the front doors and our and our deck guns and those types of things just to put a lot of water on a lot of fire, and that's basically what it, it came down to. And and you know we had a lot of command staff there, and and really it was just really watching the perimeter. Uh, let the firefighters do what they do. Uh, let the captains and the battalion chief make the, the good decisions they made. And we were just making sure we we're protecting their safety and making sure they didn't have break down the perimeters. Okay. And, and then how are you communicating with, uh, you know, the, the, the police or, you know, at some point with the National Guard? How are you ensuring communications with them to make sure that everybody's on the same page, you know, when you're on scene? Because, like, was it really interesting to hear was – and again, you know, hearing on the scanner, you know, so you have a little bit of a delay and also then hearing or watching it on KSTP online, you know, they were saying, okay, prepare, you know, everybody put your face piece on, uh, you know, the police are going to fire tear gas. And literally seconds later, you see on TV, you start seeing these clouds. So how are you communicating yeah. with them on scene? Uh, and, you know, again, making sure that everybody on all four sides knows what's going on um, at that time. Yeah, we, we were, you know, all of the, in terms of law enforcement, we we have we're you know like me in the communities, we have a really good working relationship with our with our with our cops, and it, we just do an effective job of on scene um, uh, communication. And they would they would come right up and say, "We're going to gas and we're going to drop some gas and be prepared." Now we always had our our BAs on, but in a defensive attack, we may not have a position, we may not have had our face pieces on. Uh, so it was it made it it was pretty much about a verbal, sometimes radio, but a lot of times it was verbal. Generally, there's somebody in charge of that security unit that would be right next to our command vehicle, and they're just doing okay. face-to-face and staying in constant communication. So the information flow on scene like that was we never we did I don't think we ever got were ever surprised by uh, gas being dropped without us being notified. That's great uh, for that that type of situation to unfold that fast. Uh, that's really great to hear. Um, yeah. And, and so you mentioned, you know, so, so you folks were on the, the, the command staff was on the uh, perimeter for safety. Um, did you encounter any, you know, really um, close call type scenarios where, you know, the the, the folks that, that were in the streets were, were really like you felt like your life was, I guess, threatened or, or you know, immediate um, danger? Well, I'm... I'm calling you from my home right now, and I'm looking out in my driveway, and I'm looking at my car with my cheese car with most of the windows blown out of it, and uh, okay, and this car's all dent, this car's all dented up. So it was uh, pretty obvious we got shelled on early on when we had very limited uh, perimeter security, and when that started to break down, then I early on, you know, the request was made for guard and, and national guard and more resources to be able to protect us, and I. Uh, quickly made the decision that we weren't sending anybody unless we could be effectively, and because they're starting to break down, they're starting to grow, and now we had almost the entire Lake Street, that whole length of a few miles of, of people running and, and looting, and it, and it was kind of an odd scenario because it didn't start at 9 o'clock in the morning and go all day. It would sort of settle down, and about 9 o'clock at night when that sun started to go down, we just had to be mm-hmm. prepared, and, and, and then it came, and it would go from you know 9 o'clock at night to probably four o'clock in the morning and it was full on engagement. And then again, it would just, all of a sudden it would just settle down and then it would go away until, so we'd have time to kind of regroup and, and, and think about what, what we had and, and adjust, uh, you know, tactically make some adjustments and think about what we had to do. And during those times, 
uh, we made some very strong con uh, requests, you know, up through the, uh, uh, we had a, um, uh, a unified command post set up, a much larger command, much more robust command post set up where there were a lot of uh, agencies in there from local, state, and, and federal agencies in, and we made a lot of um, um, strong requests for additional support for security, and that's, I know there's some requests for the guard to be stood up, and, and one thing I would I would say is um, about this, it, it, it takes time to set up a guard, and, and, and uh, what, what's going to happen, you just have to realize that these events are going to escalate very, very quickly, and when it gets into multi-day, uh, pretty soon you just are stripped of security resources to help you protect your perimeters, and uh, it, it was starting to, we just couldn't go. It got to a point where I said, no, we're not going until we have that uh, that secure that security unit to, to, to lead us in, and uh, once we had the you know, it probably takes two days to set up a guard unit. They already called in and they had their vehicles in. And once we had that established, that made things much more easy for us. We had a, last night, for example, uh, we've had upwards of, of about nine big military vehicles and 60 uh, guardsmen going in with each of our task forces. So that's a pretty strong contingent to go in. There again, it's a lot of vehicles going in and, uh, so we had to talk with them and through them about how we'd like to have our perimeters set up and how we would like to gain entry. So you have to communicate with those folks who are not used to doing, you know, structural firefighting in an in urban setting and, and setting up a perimeter to, to, uh, uh, to protect uh, uh, firefighters. You know, you got water flowing everywhere and hose lines laying everywhere and, and blocking hydrants. So we had to be very strategic in, in communicating with those folks and how we'd like to have it set up. And it didn't take, um, um, a lot of conversation. Those, those folks are well trained, also, and so they they understand what you know. It didn't take um, much of a discussion or even some kind of just-in-time training to, to let them know what we needed from them. And it, it worked. It's worked out very very well the last couple of nights for us. The first first one night or two, it was um, it was tenuous at best. And I'll be honest with you, it was it was very very challenging. The last couple, it has been so much better that it's. Uh, uh, we were able to kind of uh, take a breather a little bit in responding. It wasn't quite as uh, um, obviously we're on, on hyper alert and, and for sure in regards to our firefighter safety. But I tell you what, to have that guard in the early and massive perimeter support is a key to have any kind of success, especially if you're going to try to uh, extinguish or control any of these fires. And, and as far as the shifts and stuff like that, are you are you putting the same companies through each night that the as the task force or each day I should say as the task forces? Or are you kind of splitting it up? Are you keeping the traditionally the first two units for that area? Because um, I, I can imagine that the the mental toll on these firefighters right now too, um, having you know seen districts that they have been working in for years and or potentially you know living or grew up in. Um, so so what are you doing to address the 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 health and wellness of the firefighters while all this is going on. You know, when we, we designated the stations where we were going to locate our task forces, we I, I wanted to make sure that we still had um, enough um, personnel in the surrounding stations that could take care of sort of the day-to-day -day stuff. And so when we established the task forces, they were just there to um, respond to um, events in and around some of the civil uh, unrest we had. Okay. And so I and and so really, when I talked about earlier, it really didn't get amped up until you know um, you know early evening is when it really started to, to get amped up. We sort of left them just. We said just we want you to relax. We want you to rest, stay rested, hydrate, take care of yourselves, monitor each other, and we're in the middle of this COVID scenario so they're still self-assessing and doing some of those things and and now all that has been kind of out the window for us because there isn't, social distancing is probably gone i've got now i've got fire stations with with not only my my task force sitting with a number of firefighters but i've got 60 or 70 or 100 military individuals all in and around the same fire station so that means they're they're using the facilities okay. the bathrooms and all those kinds of things so it it started to bring in some other challenges that that I hadn't thought of. I know that I think tomorrow I'm going to schedule to have the all of the stations, stations are going to come in and the, and the contractors are going to come in and, and and they're going to they're going to clean the entire station. They're going to fog them all. And I'm kind of reload the deck. I'm just going through sort of 
remind people, set some, some barriers and some parameters in and around the whole issue of COVID because I know if I, all of a sudden I start having an outbreak of that, we start having folks that become symptomatic. That may not only take down that entire task force, but it's all going to get into my um, uh, National Guard folks here in town. So it's, it, there's a lot of unique challenges to this that we started thinking about uh, more and more as we started going uh, farther along in this deal. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's interesting, right? Uh, you know, there was something uh, on TV the other night where COVID is, um, COVID's kind of forgotten at this point, you know, it's three months of, uh, of shutdowns and, and it's, it's, it's a completely the past in a lot of places. And, you know, fortunately here where I'm at in Texas, they've had one night, uh, a little bit of violence. Hopefully that's all that they'll have to record for that. But, um, yeah, more things to consider. Yeah, so interesting to hear that you have to to do the COVID uh, cleaning uh, with everything else going on. Um, yeah, and this and that's really kind of as a, as a precaution. One thing that that I noticed with I used in, in watching this, and I've been I've been there every night, and and it, you just you watch this. This country's been locked down for basically you know three months, you know, and, and depending where you live, and and a lot of orders to stay home and not go to work and those kinds of things. Well, and then when an event like this happens, everybody has that pent up urge to get out and mm -hmm. and I really think that all with this when this all happened that just added to that's just one more piece that added to people wanting to act out I mean they just wanted to get they're tired of being locked up and in their in their homes and feel like they're you know under siege from COVID and now this event happens and it just created a, it's just one more little element I think added a little bit of of um, accelerant you know what I mean to just the yeah. total chain of events yeah, I mean it's the tension, the the uneasiness of what's going on, and then and throw this on, and you know, COVID was originally in New York, and and eventually it spread across the country, and the same thing here. You know, this um, the the violence started in Minneapolis and has spread throughout the country, um, yeah, as well. So I mean, it, it's I think that's a, that's very hard for people to understand. There was a relation at one point that you know September 11th took took you know 3,000 lives and. It was pretty much centered in New York with a couple of small other areas, you know, D.C. and Pennsylvania. Um, but, I mean, this is just, you know, two major events within a few months where everyone's world's already been turned upside down. And now we've got yeah. what's going on impacting millions of people. So um, it's interesting, you know, again, that, that mental health aspect, I think, will be interesting to see because, um, it's you know, now that it's spread outside, I mean, you've got the, the videos that we've seen from, Charlotte and Atlanta and, and, and Rochester, New York. Um, you know, I saw a video this morning. They actually pulled a supply line off of an engine in Rochester where uh, they were going to some vehicle fires. You know, this is after they were riding the front bumper of the engine as they were trying to get through the crowd. Um, yeah. So as far as, and just to go back to the fire scenes for a second, something that kind of popped up is what are you doing as far as um, having enough, you know, SCBA bottles or, other supplies. I mean, are they going from one incident to another? Are they going back to do a reset at the station? Um, are, are you sending out um, salvage to, I'm sorry, the salvage unit um, with, with the SCBA bottles and stuff like that? Or what, what are you doing just to make sure that all the, the, the needs are met there? And also, too, as far as, you know, just making sure firefighters have, you know, some water and, and, and you know, some food as they kind of run all night. Um, what, what's the department doing in that relation? Yeah, it's been it's been um, the community outpouring in terms of, of support for the firefighters has been has been really outstanding. I mean, there it's a typical day. Somebody's cooking, and and now you, it's it's kind of the old school days when we had a lot more firefighters. When I when I came <laughs> on the job, and and you'd have you know twenty people sitting around eating a twelve pound meatloaf, you know. And so now it's uh, it's kind of it's nice to see when I see that part of it is a good side to see. A lot of firefighters in the fire station cooking big meals and enjoying that 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 time together and be able to do that. And some of the uh, kind of letting it go a little bit, a little bit of the teasing comes on. They're, they're just, you can just tell they're venting a little bit, you know, because they're they're under a lot of pressure. And and the, the community has been and they've been dumping off. We've had restaurants like so many of them around the country. They've been very generous with food, and so that's been one thing that's um, been very very good. However, again, that takes them right back. That's what made me start thinking about the whole COVID thing and how we are, mm -hmm. how we're dealing with that now. It's a, yeah, that, that's changed that a little bit. That's why I think I'm going to have to have these stations cleaned thoroughly 
uh, more frequently by by other than just our firefighters doing it by a commercial contractor. So it's it's uh, it's uh, it, it's a different environment. And I'll be honest, in my in my 42 years, I haven't I've never had this kind of civil unrest where I had this vastness of fires in area that um, you kind of have a little bit of a feeling of helplessness because there's areas you know you want to get to and you just can't get there. And that is been, that's been hard on my firefighters. I know it's been hard on me. I know we have around some of these fires, we've had senior high-rise living, for example, and the buildings, you can't even see them. They're so surrounded with smoke. Well, there's, there's no way that we could ever attempt to evacuate those those buildings, you know, so you have to do the best you can to try to shelter in place and, and try to communicate that out under these and these conditions. It gets to be, um, it's very tenuous and it, it gets to be challenged. Just a lot of things I've been thinking about when I've been out there on scene is we got that building that's covered with smoke. I know it's senior high rise. It's full of senior citizens who are only vulnerable in the COVID thing, and now they're locked in their apartments, and they create a lot more phone calls. They feel like they're trapped, and so we had a lot of those overwhelming type calls of people thinking that they're trapped because they're, they're, they're scared, and, and it just created a lot of additional challenges that you don't necessarily think about until you get into the moment. And, and you don't have the resources to really handle that, right? I mean, you're trying to just keep the minimal number of crews on scene. Yeah, oh, yeah. Exactly. And, and, okay. and the thing is, you know, I, I could have had the resources to do it. I didn't have the escorts to do it. I had nobody to take them in there. Okay. That, that's what was so frustrating so much that we just couldn't do it because the security was such that that uh, it was, uh, yeah, that's one thing I really had to consider. It's mean, just always firefighter safety is always number one, and you just have to make those, those tough decisions, and um, those aren't always easy to make. Okay. Um, you know, you mentioned your your vehicle was damaged already. Have you had uh, a lot of equipment uh, and or apparatus vehicles damaged at this point? Um, you know, the, the first day, day and a half of when it really before we had really effective security when the perimeters were when we have a you know a smaller group of people trying to protect us, the perimeters become uh, much smaller. But now that we've gotten and that that made it much easier for for individuals to throw bricks and rocks and stuff and, and actually hit our vehicles. We took a lot more damage the first day. All of our, you know, our chill cab windows on our on our ladder companies are, are broken. We had a lot of glass broken and, and of course dents and those types of things. A lot of most of our our, our staff vehicles that are that have been responding have have windows broken out of them. We've had some windows replaced and so we've had a lot of that type of damage. We have not had any theft off of our rigs, they haven't right. taken tools and equipment to go do other damage. That hasn't happened yet. Um, so they've been, so some of our perimeters initially were very, very small, which made it tenuous. And now with the support of the National Guard in there, they are much, so we can pretty much secure, uh, secure the entire block, which is, now that gives us a lot more room to operate and we feel much, much more safer. Not that they're shooting fireworks or there's, there's, old fireworks, spelled fireworks containers laying everywhere because those things have some reach. So they still, that's like mm -hmm. lobbing mortars in on you, you know, and that's, uh, so that's, uh, but now it, it's gotten much, much, much better. Okay, that's 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 really good to hear. And again, you, you see, you know, you see the TV footage and, and you can't even see the fire trucks at this point because the, the lines are two and three feet, I'm sorry, two or three um, guardsmen deep. Um, Okay, and then what what are you what are you doing as far as uh, you know rekindles and stuff like that? I know uh, again, listening to some of the addresses continue to pop up. Uh, are you are you doing much with rekindles, or if it's it just you have heavy fire conditions, you'll just knock it down and move back uh, back to safety, or kind of what's your plan for that? What we, what we've been doing, and you know, I talked about that lull in the action, so to speak. If I were defining mm -hmm. it like that, we. Uh, so the, uh, the crew's working on a particular shift, and they go till four in the morning or whatever it turns out to be when it start, we start to begin the lull. And then they, they go back to the station. They get a chance to take a little break. And then the oncoming shift is on at 8 o'clock. You know, the duties of the oncoming task forces are just to go in uh, and mop up some of the fires that we've had. And it, it's worked out very well. We've had multiple calls. But they, generally during the day from, you know, 8 o'clock until early evening, 
it's much it's easier to get into those areas to, to mop up the fire. So that's kind of how the overhaul has been handled, and it's it's worked out very well. And then you start you start seeing debris cleanup, and it's like they would would have a night of fires, and they'd do some street debris cleanup. Public works would come in and start cleaning some debris out of the streets, and then they'd pile it up and inside the the rooms of the buildings, and then that would smolder, then they'll flare. And then we would do that during the day of the early the next shift and do a mop-up for us. And that's how the routine kind of worked. The oncoming shift did the mop-up and we did the, uh, or I should say mop-up or responding back for, and we, you're right, we had multiple addresses of smoldering fires that people are calling on and we had crews going to do that. And that's pretty much how it shifted. And during the day, we didn't have to have all the perimeter security that we needed at night. And so they could basically, one, one engine, a truck company could be going and and because people were out and about, and so we didn't have the, the need for all the, the perimeter security. Just again in the evening hours is when we just focused on knocking the fires down. We knew that we were going to come back and, and mop them up the next day. And what we would do would make a list of the buildings that we knew had to be revisited in the morning by the next shift. And we would pass those on to the oncoming deputy. And then he or she would make the assignment of which task force to go in and, and do a little overhaul. Okay. All right, great. Um, and are, as far as just kind of tracking, uh, and I, I assume it's a citywide initiative, right? But what, what are you doing as far as just trying to track the, the locations that have been uh, damaged or completely destroyed? Um, just to make sure you have a complete understanding, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the information's in the system for crews responding. Are you tracking that? Are you using any sort of technology to just to kind of make sure everybody's on the same page with, with the the overall destruction you know pretty much we all have you know being that you know one thing that's unique about this you know lake street's a straight road and we just know that's a straight seven eight mile road and on on almost a full length now there's been there's been um issues of of, of burning or whatever at the present time we are certainly working with the the um, fire inspection services and other venues to try to track this as best we can. And I'll be very honest, right now, I couldn't tell you the number of fires because we haven't figured out how many we actually have right now. All of our, we have to go through all of our records and all the reporting that the crews have done when they've gotten back to the stations. There's been a number of, of fires that, that we have to, to track, but we are using as much of the technology we have in the city, whether it be the mapping capability we have to, to uh, and again, working with EM, uh, the Emergency Management Division, and they are doing uh, maintaining, you know, um, structural assessments of what's been damaged, and so there's a lot of information flow going on right now as we speak. Matter of fact. Okay. And, and are you doing any sort of, you know, I guess the old windshield assessments of of going around and checking the area? So you already said you're sending crews out in the morning, and, and it, you know, just to check on the buildings that have been burned down. Are you checking other neighborhoods just to make sure there's no other issues, no other fire safety issues at this point? Or um, yeah. is that primarily a police um, concern? No, matter of fact, I've, I've got crews out uh, during the day, uh, especially some of the outlying companies who are not necessarily being involved with, with the task forces or just outside that, uh, you know, I guess, larger area of, of, of civil disturbance. I have them going out in the community to be observant for, uh, we're finding stockpiles of accelerant all around the city. Wow. We've seen uh, piles of, you know, it's already been chunked up rocks and concrete that are just put in position. You know, little caches that are kind of laying on the boulevard. It may look like typical construction debris. Well, they've been purposely dumped there, you know, and they were, you know, so they could start to run down the street. Well, they they run out of rocks. They're, they're going to come onto another pile and they've got more, more, um, uh, you know, uh, stuff to throw at, uh, at, at the buildings and or at responders. So there was, it's been uh, the, the law enforcement finding a lot of caches. Uh, they're also finding uh, caches of, of different types of, uh, they're finding other weapons and those kinds of things that are set up. One thing I, I believe that we found and we noticed early on, they were going around, if they didn't loot the stations, the gas stations, the service stations, or some stores, they were taking the one pound propane cylinders, that, those little green propane cylinders, mm -hmm. they were putting uh, they were putting torch heads on them, you know, like a trigger torch. You kind of spark it off, so you got a, or you got a, you know, you got a device that can easy light a fire just by just by walking and pulling the trigger. Now you got a torch with a one-pound cylinder. It's easy to disguise. You can hide it, and they're just running down the street, torching buildings with that. 
and then adding the accelerant that they needed it. So a lot of the a lot of the auto parts stores they were they were busting in to take whatever they could that may be an accelerant of that and that was that was useful to them and then they were they were caching them and stashing them in, in bushes and I know right now they're they're out they're still out there now. We're not we're not done with this. I know it's gonna start tonight again and we're gonna have to be more concerned about that. The better the uh, best thing we did here in Minneapolis, they, they initiated that curfew and they enforced it. Uh that was yeah. something that uh, was a little bit frustrating to me. They said there was going to be a curfew. Well, then the curfew came, and um, that that wasn't followed up by as much of the enforcement of that as we needed. And, and so now, once that's been established, it's, uh, that really made uh, uh, really made a difference. And I would highly recommend, you know, ask early, establish those curfews, and uh, enforce them. You know, you just can't say the word. They have to be. There has to be consequences, and you have to take action to to try to. Uh, slow the the progression of these things can slow the growth because once it starts you can't stop it it is like a it's like a, a tidal wave it just starts to grow and it, it is hard to stop okay well, well chief i appreciate i know i know you're busy and, and hopefully we can get you a little rest today but is there anything that we might have missed is there anything that you want to share i mean you, you shared some great uh, tips for other departments who might be encountering this here um, but is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners, um, whether it's from the command side, from the, the fire ground operations side, from the emergency management side? Um, is there anything you want to kind of share as we wrap up today? No, and I, I think we've, you know, I, I think in, the, in this country, I think in most parts of the country, everybody's have well-established things from command systems and, and, um, it's important not to forget about using your partners, using EM. You know, you know, uh, it, it, when you have those collaborative efforts for emergency manager, they can be a lot of assistance to you, and, and most everybody uses them now. And it's it's one thing I think we've come a long ways, at least in my career, where now most parts of the country are, are very effective in that. And and uh, um, it's 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 important, and I and I think again we, um, at least in this community, we we stepped up with our partners and. What's different for me personally is that a lot of the people you have those face-to-face um, relationship with, they're all retired, you know. And I walk around, I see a lot of young folks out there, and and they're, and they're stepping up and 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 standing the post, which I really appreciate. I know in our department, we've got I've, I've probably replaced about 45% of my department in the last. Uh, seven years or eight years I've been the chief and so we're a very young department and we have these kinds of scenarios it's a it, it's a little bit challenging a little more concerned about them that's why there's so many command staff on scene to make sure these these young firefighters young officers make good decisions and but it's a it's an opportunity that we're going to have after this we're going to be a much better department when they come out the other side of this thing so they're getting a a lot of a, a lot of um experience in, 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 in true emergencies and civil unrest, which brings in unique challenges for each and every one of us, depending on what part of the country you might be living in. So it's uh, it's been good. And uh, uh, that's really about, you know, I hope I've made some sense today because I am tired, I'm telling you. Um, no, no, Chief, I, I, you know, uh, the insights into what you guys are, what your firefighters are encountering is just, I, I could ask about all the fires, you know, and, and the apartment building fire. I mean, there are a million questions from my side of it. Um, but again, you know, I mean, what can you do, right? You, you protected the exposures and um, yeah, there's so many questions, but I appreciate you taking the time out to, to join us. And again, I, I, the whole goal here is to share some information with other departments who are facing that literally as, as we're sitting here. Um, I just got a text that uh, the city of Fort Worth has en- enacted a curfew. So yesterday was the first day of any issues and the curfew's in and uh, we know here they're going to enforce it. Um, so that's good. I mean, that's, that is good news. Um, unfortunately, there's, be it, be it goes back to people being stuck at home or, you know, not being able to yeah, go out and, just... and, and, and do what they normally do. Um, and this is the second round of being told what to do, but it, you know, for the sake of safety, I, I think it's critical. Um, well, Chief, I, I really do appreciate it. We'll, we'll definitely have you back on um, when things settle down. I, I just yeah, yeah, I wish I you and all your members a opportunity. Thank you, thank you. I wish you guys a, a, a safe, uh, you know, return to normal uh, when when that's allowed. But uh, just just thank you for all that you've done. Uh, you've been in the national spotlight, uh, 
for, for a week now, and you've given the fire service uh, um, a really positive um, uh, feel for the people who are watching. I mean, you're coming in, you're doing what you have to do, uh, the professionalism, um, you know, like anything else with the fire service, no matter what the fire service does, what they have to do. So it's it's been good to be able to see that. Uh, unfortunately, we have to see it, but it's good to be able to see what Minneapolis and all these other departments are doing uh, to handle the job uh, despite all the challenges and the threats that they're encountering. So thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Hope everybody stays safe out there. Firefighting is essential for our communities, but it's not easy. With increased heat loads and toxic substances, the job today is more dangerous than ever. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop highly advanced safety equipment to protect you on the job. MSA's Globe Gear is performance and protection in perfect balance. It's designed to meet the challenges you face every day to help keep you safe and healthy during your career and beyond. Get the full story at msafire.com globe.